Yo, y'all know what time it is. NCOPD Live, Wednesday night, prime time. We in the building. TPSGL is ready to go. I want all the smoke. Let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special edition of NCOPD Live, hosted by yours truly, the one and only song first class, Hicks, hashtag the professional SGL, coming at you live from Beaumont, Texas. Listen, so we got the guest in the background. I'm super excited about uh, uh, listening him to him today. Uh, had a great conversation, great dialogue, and I believe that today's episode is definitely going to shed light, and we hope to... Um, impact some leaders that may be dealing with some mental health issues to go and get seen. Uh, one one note that we do have that we want to uh, discuss real quick before we bring out this evening's guest is that tomorrow, tomorrow, October 6th, if you're in the Fort Bliss area, make sure you're at the next, I want to say the second annual, but it's not even the annual, but the second female leadership forum. Uh, those individuals are back. They're going to be in Fort Bliss tomorrow. That is the one and only is now First Sergeant Janina Simmons, Sergeant First Class Aston P. Muse, and Sergeant First Class Latoya, no middle name, Green. I like the way they gave her that. So uh, if you're in the Fort Bliss area, make sure you find out the location they told me. I don't have it in front of me at the moment. But hey, if you're on Fort Bliss, I'm pretty sure all you have to do is ask where one of those individuals are going to be. And trust me, somebody's going to guide you to the location of where they are going to be. So make sure you check that out as well. Also, uh, we are, um, like I said yesterday, we had a great conversation uh, with Command Sergeant Major Michael L. Gregg, the Department of Health Agency Sergeant Major. And we had a great talk with his team yesterday. Looking forward to the upcoming dialogue to get Command Sergeant Major Michael L. Gregg on the show uh, to talk about some uh, some things in reference to COVID and things like that. So those are the admin uh, announcements for today. So this evening's guest, there will not be NCOPD Live today. Uh, we moved it today uh, to this day uh, to make sure that we can be able to facilitate our guests. But this individual, I, when his story first came to me, uh, one of my team members brought me this article and I read this article and I was like, oh, wow. And so and I'm not going to give the details of the article because we're going to talk about it. But when I read the article, I was like, OK, yes, I agree with you all. This is definitely a, a, a leader that we need to get onto the page, tell his story. And then not only that, but he's an advocate 
of uh, leaders getting seen for mental health. So without further ado, this evening's special guest is the one and only Major General Retire Greg Martin. Sir, how's it going? Excellent. Thank you, D. Great, great, great to have you, sir. So uh, before we get into even the introduction, pleasantries, we have a, 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 an, um, we have, I'm so super excited to talk to you. I'm getting tongue twisted over here, but we have a, an icebreaker here at NCOPD Live that we like to play. Now, before I tell you the rules, I will tell you this. No one in the history of NCOPD Live as a guest has ever came onto the show and declined to put, to play the icebreaker. Now, you can make history, sir. You can be the first guest to ever come on to NCOPD Live and decline to play the icebreaker. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, do you wish to play? Absolutely. Bring it on, D. Okay, great, sir. So I'm going to explain to you the rules. The rules are as such. It's called the five-second rule. I'm going to ask you to name me three of something, and you have five seconds to name those items. The clock will start after I tell you what I would like you to name me. Any questions? No questions. Okay, as you can see, the clock is on zero. And my question to you is, name three buildings. Because you worked in the D.C. area, correct? Correct. All right. Name three buildings where you would see a U.S. service member working in and around the D.C. area. Go. The White House, the Pentagon, and Eisenhower Hall on Fort McNair. 4.31, sir. Whoa. Not bad, sir. Not bad. <laughs> Congratulations. So first, sir, let me say on behalf of my advisors, uh, the NCO PD Live team and staff, um, I'd like to thank you for taking this opportunity to come on to the show today and uh, share your story. Uh, and at this time, sir, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you introduce yourself to the viewers that are watching. Mike is yours, sir. Hey, first, it's a huge honor and a pleasure to be on this show, D. So thanks for the invite and uh, greetings to everybody out in the audience. Uh, so my name is Greg Martin. I grew up in Holbrook, Massachusetts, just a little bit outside of Boston. So growing up, I was a huge Celtics fan, Patriots, Red Sox, Boston Bruins. Uh, my Army career started in 1975, uh, just as the Vietnam War was ending, when I went to West Point, the U.S. Military Academy up in New York. Uh, I graduated uh, and was commissioned into the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, and then I went over to what was then West Germany during the Cold War. And I was a platoon leader, EXO, company commander, et cetera. And I, had, I didn't plan on staying in the Army for a career. I was just going to do my five-year commitment and then get out and get a civilian thing going. But I fell in love with the soldiers. I love being a platoon leader and a company commander. I mean, the soldiers were... Uh, they were great guys, and it was all men in those days in the combat engineer units, but they were, they were tough guys. Uh, they drank a lot. Uh, there were some drugs in the barracks. They swore constantly. They drank more black coffee than anybody I ever met, mm -hmm. and they were very diverse uh, racially, religious-wise, background. I mean, we had farm boys, city guys, uh, soldiers who were allowed out of jail uh, there were nonviolent mm. felons to go serve in the in the army during the all-volunteer army in the early days. So I just fell in love with these guys. They were awesome. And mm -hmm. they all had personal problems. And as the platoon leader and the company commander, I took it upon myself to do everything I could to help these guys have the best life they could, make sure they got their pay, everything was squared away, help them with family problems. And in return, 
they busted their butt. We had a tough, challenging, dangerous, exciting mission to basically defend Western Europe against the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. So mm -hmm. I fell in love with it. Uh, decided to just keep serving in the army. The way they do business, if you haven't noticed, is if they think you have promise and potential and are doing a good job, they keep giving you one great assignment after another. They send mm -hmm. you to school. And so I just kept staying in, kept going to school, kept going to great jobs. And before you know it, I made it all the way to colonel and then to general officer. Um, I retired from active duty in... 2015. So I had 36 years of official wow. active duty time. And then if you had the four years at West Point, which is actually active duty, you get paid. It comes out to 40 years in the army. Um, retired, like I said, 2015. So that was six years ago. And then uh, I'll tell you about my story with mental health crisis and what I've been doing since retirement once we get into the, uh, the interview. Wow, sir. So let me first say uh, uh, thank you for your service. Uh, 40 great years of, uh, of you know, being a great leader. And I got to ask you this question before we get into our talking points. So out of every position that you've held, company commander, battalion, brigade, platoon leader, what would you say was your favorite position to hold? You know, I loved being a company commander because I had 180 soldiers. I knew everybody. I really knew what I was doing as a company commander. I had a fabulous first sergeant named Edwin P. Leahy, who had, he had dual tattoos on his knuckles. One said love, L-O-V-E, the other said hate, H-A-T-E. So this guy was a wow. man, but he was the best NCO I ever served with. He knew everything in that unit, every weapon, every bit of tactics. He knew every soldier. He knew how to solve any problem that came up. And he was one of the meanest, toughest guys I ever met. But he had a heart of gold. Um, so I, I think company command was my favorite, but I'll just expand it a bit. I also love battalion command because mm -hmm. even though you, you weren't as close to the soldiers, by the time you're a lieutenant colonel, you really have tremendous experience and, and breadth of knowledge. And you have the ability to really, really take care of soldiers and do great things for the troops and their family families because you have so much power as a lieutenant mm -hmm. colonel battalion commander. So I would say those two. Oh, wow. So uh, one of the things I love to talk about is engaged leadership. And uh, uh, one thing I look at when engaged leadership is that, you know, your soldiers, you know, the things that they're going uh, that they're going through. And it seemed like you and the first sergeant uh, was definitely uh, in cahoots with each other to make sure you all knew what was going on within that company. Absolutely. We were. I mean, we were tighter and closer than thieves. And mm -hmm. uh, there was no doubt in my mind or in anybody else's mind that the first sergeant was the man. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was the guy who ran Bravo Company, 79th Engineer Battalion. And I was fine with that. I had no ego. I didn't mind that everybody knew and thought he was really running the company because he was. and. Mm -hmm. Without him, we wouldn't have been nearly as good. So I had no ego problems with that at all. And we worked as a great team. Unfortunately, when I left, the guy who followed me, who was a very good officer on paper, uh, he had a real ego problem. He couldn't deal with the fact that the first sergeant was the man. He couldn't deal mm -hmm. with it. And so they knocked heads and eventually the it, things just fell apart, which was really mm -hmm. a shame. 
But wow. we had a great relationship. Uh, we worked together on everything. No secrets. Uh, we were kind of the one-two punch. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely so. I know before before we end the show, I, I definitely would like you to highlight uh, on uh, that officer NCO relationship and the importance of it. Or if you would like to highlight on it now before we get into it, why do you think that it's important for that officer and that NCO, whether it's platoon leader, platoon sergeant, company first sergeant, company commander, and so forth? Why do you think that that is very important to the unit? I mean, the key a, a key component to unit success. As an officer, I realize that a experienced, seasoned, smart, talented NCO has vast knowledge and capability that I will never have because he or she grew up from the enlisted ranks and was you know, a team leader, a squad leader, a platoon sergeant, a first sergeant, a sergeant major. I'll never have that knowledge or experience or the, you know, the intuition to do things that that, you know, that that really quality NCO has. But on the other hand, as a commissioned officer, I have experience, education, authority, power that no enlisted person, no NCO mm -hmm. has. And so how do I leverage that authority and knowledge I have together with the senior NCO and make the most bang for the buck and, and do the most good for the most soldiers every single day? Mm -hmm. And so by working as a team, you know, integrated, um, no ego. Uh, we could get great things done if nobody cares who gets the credit. Wow, that's awesome. That is totally awesome. I appreciate you for that because uh, we may have to bring you back uh, in the future to dive, do, do, do a little bit more deep dive into officer NCO relationship. If we put a panel together, would you like to be a part of that? Love to. Okay, great, great. So, sir, um, uh, like I said, thanks for coming on the show. But tonight, this evening, we're going to talk about mental health. And uh, like I was stating in the opening, uh, uh, my opening comments is that my team brought me an article and they was like, hey, boss, we need you to look at this article. And I didn't look at it right then. I believe I looked at it like the next morning. Uh, I was was laying down and I read this article and I'm reading it and I'm like, wow. And they're like, hey, we think that this this guy would be a great a great uh a great fit to be on the show because how often do we talk about mental healthness and we don't and we're going to talk about those stigmas as to why we don't talk about it so i'm reading this article and uh you were you were the president of the national defense university correct correct and that's in the dc area yes okay so i'm reading this article and then uh general dempsey was the chairman at the time and, and he calls you up and he asks you to come over to his office. And there was a conversation that was had. Sure, sir, uh, share with us what happened. So uh, middle of July 2014, uh, I get a call from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who, as you know, is the number one military officer in our country. And uh, I had known General Dempsey for years. I had been one of his battalion commanders. Uh, we had worked together. He had been not only a boss, a great boss. He had been a friend and a mentor. And I loved the guy. And we got along great. But I got uh, the phone call saying, hey, it was on a Friday. Greg, need you to report to my office Monday morning, 10 o'clock. And I knew that something was going on because there had been a number of assessments and even a 15-6 investigation focused on me and my leadership and what was going on at NDU. And to use National Defense University. And so I knew something was happening. Um, and 
I didn't know what though. I, I had a request in to have my position extended to a five-year term of duty and revert it back to a three-star position. I had requested that. Uh, I had requested a regular extension. And then I thought, but he might be getting ready to fire me because of these other bad things going on. So mm-hmm. I, I, I walk into his office and he strides across the room. The first thing I noticed was the lawyer was in the room, which I said, aha, that's mm. not a good sign. And uh, he strode across the room, gave me a big hug. He said, Greg, I love you like a brother, but your time at NDU is done. You have until 1,700 hours today to resign or I will fire you. Mm-hmm. And besides that, you need to go get a mental health exam. And that's an order. Wow. So the, so the first question I want to ask you, um, this mentor, this friend uh, that that you had known for years, over the years throughout your career, I'm pretty sure uh, gave you some uh, great professional development in key areas of command or even just in that leadership as uh, in general. And to hear uh, the chairman uh, at that time, your friend, your mentor, give you this order uh, my first question is, how did that make you feel on the inside? So at that time, I was acutely manic. I was in a state of full-blown mania. Although I didn't realize it, it was unknown to me. It was undiagnosed, unrecognized. But essentially, my brain was surging with excess dopamine and endorphins. And I was high as a kite. I mean, mm-hmm. my energy levels were off the charts. I wasn't sleeping. I felt like Superman. I could go on. Uh, that might be a good question. What is it like to be acutely manic? Um, and so I immediately, when he said it, I thought, aha, this is God at work. God yeah. is taking me out of this job because he has something bigger and better and more important for me. So I was mm-hmm. like, hey, thank you, God. I know you're moving me to an even bigger job. I had no disappointment at all. I knew General Dempsey really cared for me and had my best interests at heart. And he said, he said, Greg, I understand the situation. I've seen other similar uh, um, scenarios. And this is the best thing for you, your family, your health, and for the organization. So I said, okay, fine. I mean, so, and that's one of the byproducts of being acutely manic. You, I was so happy. I was like completely high on these biochemicals in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he did ask me, he said, so what do you make of this? What do you, what's your assessment of the situation? I told him, I said, Hey, sir, you know, you brought me in here two years ago to transform the organization. I am carrying out your plan, your policy, your strategy, and the people at NDU are highly resistant to change. They don't want to change. And so they're doing everything they can to undercut me, you know, doing bureaucratic guerrilla warfare, all that kind of stuff. But I said, you know, I've been cleaning this place up. I've off ramped a whole bunch of people who are bad apples. And I think that was true and legitimate. Um, You know, they've gone to the press, they've leaked stories, they've said all kinds of bad things about me. But of course, I didn't realize I had severe bipolar disorder. And so what people were seeing in me was, wow, this guy has gone crazy. He's lost his mind. He Mm -hmm. is nuts. Um, That's what people thought about me and they were saying about me and they were writing about me in the papers. Um, So because it was unknown to me, I just thought they were resisting change, resisting mm-hmm. me and the chairman. So I told him all that. And I said, if you just give me one more year, I will have this place in tip top shape, a hundred percent cleaned up and ready to go for the next decade. And Gerald Dempsey then said, he said, you know, Greg, 
you've done an amazing job. You've taken the ball from the end zone into the red zone in two years. Nobody mm -hmm. could have done this but you. But I got to get you out of there because if you've ever read uh, Gulliver's Travels, you know, they've got you down on the ground and they're going to kill you with rumors, innuendos, um, you know, bad press, IG complaints, mm -hmm. investigations. He said, I'm going to get you out of there. It's the best thing I can do for you. But I also believe there probably is something to the accusations that you have some sort of emotional or mental illness because you seem so you've gone become very unstable. So even though you want to stay there, I'm taking you out. So you have mm -hmm. till five o'clock today, your choice. Mm -hmm. And of uh, course I, I resigned in writing that day because there's a huge difference for all you in the listening audience. There's huge differences between being relieved and being removed. Mm -hmm. So if you're removed and you resign, you just resign. That's it. That's the end of story. You know, the story of the case is closed. If you're relieved, you have to be looked at by a board. There's possible rank implications. There's retired pay implications. There's disciplinary implications. There's all kinds of bad things that come out of a, uh, a uh, uh, getting fired or relieved for duty. So if you're ever given a choice of, you know, resign or you know, I'll relieve you. Take the resignation. Take the resignation. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, I know, and I know you can't speak directly for uh, General Dempsey, uh, but I want to style this next question is uh, most leaders are, are when they choose a leader, they predicated on that leader telling them what they want to hear. I want to talk to you. I want you to talk to us in the audience about what do you, how do you think uh, General Dempsey's leadership as a mentor to come to you and tell you, hey, Greg, I'm seeing this issue. This is what's going on. Hey, I need to, re I need you to get out of here. Most leaders don't do that. They, 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 they pamper us all. They don't ever tell them when they're wrong. But for him to come and tell you that as a friend, as a mentor, uh, talk to us. What do you think that, how does that represent his leadership style or his leadership philosophy to be able to tell you that and knowing that he was your mentor and a close friend? Well, General Marty Dempsey is one of the great leaders probably in the history of the army. And, uh, I first worked for him when he commanded a uh, third armored cavalry regiment. And I was his combat engineer battalion commander. Mm -hmm. Uh, then we served together in Germany. We served together in Iraq and then he became a four-star, and I was a two-star. So I was the commander of Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, when he was the TRADOC commander. Then I was the commander of the uh, Army War College, and he was TRADOC commander. And then he became chief of staff of the Army. And then he chose me to be the president of National Defense University. So I knew him well. I knew his playbook. I knew how he thought. I knew what he wanted. And he's all about total honesty, complete truth, transparency, tell it like it is, that that's part of being a leader and it's part of loving your people and taking care of them. So I respect enormously that he did, when all these complaints started coming in in the spring and summer of 2014, when I had gone acutely manic, um, he did not, people wanted him to just fire me. He said, no, I've known Greg. This is not like him. I have a hard time believing that he has this emotional instability and he's lost the confidence of his people at NDU. So what he did is he launched three assessments 
carried out by different senior leaders who were not part of NDU. In assessment number one, he focused on the students. He did an, you know, a, a multi-day assessment. How are the students doing? What do they think of the curriculum? What do they think of General Martin? And then the assessment team back briefed me and then General Dempsey. Um, and, they, and the students were very happy, but they by and large said, but we think the president, General Martin, has lost it and has gone crazy. Then he had a second assessment that looked at the faculty and the transformation of the curriculum. And the report, the results of the assessment came back and said, uh, the changes that Gerald Martin is making are excellent. It's going to really improve the curriculum and the program for the students. It's a great thing he's doing. However, we think he's lost his mind and gone crazy. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was focused directly on me. Um, how is Gerald Martin's leadership? Do people still have confidence in him? And that one was... They said, you know, what he's done in the job is remarkable, but we think he has, you know, gone into some sort of state of serious mental illness. And we, we recommend to you, General Dempsey, that he be removed from command. And Dempsey looked at these three individual assessments done by senior leaders from outside of NDU. And he came to the conclusion that, wow, this is unbelievable. I can't believe mm -hmm. this has happened to Greg Martin. But he looked at it and he said, for the good of Greg and his health and his family and for the organization, I need to get him out of there. And so he did. And he was very straightforward. Like I said, when I walked into the office, I mean, he strode across the room, gave me a big, huge hug. He had a smile on his face. He said, Greg, I love you like a brother. But your time at NDU is over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anybody that knows General Dempsey, he has like the I, I want to say like the coolest smile. Like that's one of the most things I remember about him. I remember when he was at Tradoc and I remember when he was the chief of staff. But anytime you've seen General Dempsey, I remember when he came to Fort Hood uh, when I was stationed there. And when he got up to give his, uh, we had some LPD or whatever it was, we were in the auditorium and he got up and he was smiling. That That's all, that's all he, he's, he's just, he's just a person that smiles. So he's he has a welcoming personality that individuals can talk to and he can talk to him. He's very approachable. So uh, uh, thank you for that. So with the, with this, uh, the, uh, you got the news from General Dempsey. OK, you were spot on. OK, hey, got it. If this is what you want, sir, uh, you know, I'm going to move out and draw fire. Uh, when it seems based on the, some of the things that you said is that you possibly knew that there was something wrong, but you really didn't want to accept it or, or how did that play out? Did you really know that there was something wrong with you or? So I thought I was fine. I, I mm -hmm. thought I was the smartest person in the world with the best strategic vision, the most energy. I, I thought I was superhuman. Um, I had no idea and didn't think I had a mental illness, let alone bipolar disorder. But when all these people told the assessment teams that we think Martin has lost it, and then the assessment teams in their outbriefing to me said, Joe Martin, you know, here's what everybody told us, and here's what our recommendation is to General Dempsey. And each of them said, we think you have severe emotional, emotional instability, possibly some form of mental illness. We are going to recommend to General Dempsey that he take you out of the presidency. So when I heard that three times in a row from senior level DOD officials, from generals to, you know, SESs, 
to ambassadors who were on these assessment teams. I said, whoa, this doesn't look too good. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but I know I'm doing a great job. I know Dempsey knows I'm doing a great job. So probably nothing will happen to me, but it might. And uh, so I, I was ready for all occasions. But I didn't realize there was really anything wrong with me. After I came out of NDU in mid-July, I, I was given a staff position back at the Corps of Engineers headquarters. So the Army was good to me. They didn't force me out within 30 days. They gave me a meaningful job where I could kind of make a contribution, but also get ready for retirement and take care of any medical issues. So I was treated pretty fairly. But I felt myself physically spiraling down day mm. after day, week after week. So after about a month or two, I, I mean, I had like no energy. I felt lousy. It was very hard to get up and go to work. When I was at work, it was hard to concentrate. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable talking to people. Um, I just started feeling really weird. And what I know now is I had spiraled into pretty serious depression, which goes with the bipolar cycles where you're up in mania and then you go down into depression. And then I'll never forget, it was Veterans Day, November 11th, 2014. Beautiful sunny day, Indian summer, gorgeous. I went out for a walk mm -hmm. and I collapsed. I wow. totally collapsed. I couldn't move. And um, I had just crashed into severe depression where mm -hmm. my body could hardly function because the way the brain works, you have to, your brain has to um, uh, produce and distribute enough dopamine and endorphins for you to be able to function with energy and happiness and a positive attitude. And when you go into mania, it's because you have too much of those critical chemicals. When you go into depressions, because you have too few. And mm -hmm. I had, I mean, my brain was barely producing them. And again, that's classic bipolar. And mm -hmm. so I collapsed. I went on emergency uh, visit to Walter Reed. And it was a struggle even to get there, but I got there. And the doctors, after they, they had given me three evaluations back in July when I was command directed to do a psych eval. And they had told me on three occasions with different doctors, I'm fit for duty. I had no psychological problems. And so I believed I was totally fine, but the diagnosis was wrong. And it's very tricky to diagnose mental illness, especially mm -hmm. bipolar. But in December, but in November, when I went back, they said, aha, you have shown the up symptoms of mania and the down symptoms of depression, we are diagnosing you with bipolar disorder type one. And so, and I accepted, I said, I totally believe you. Uh, I didn't think anything was wrong when I was in mania because I felt so good. I mean, I was, I mean, I had the greatest high you can get in the world. I mean, there's no drug you can take that's even close to the, to the high you get from mania. But the depression is crippling, it's dark, it's hopeless, it's horrible. It's the worst thing I could ever uh, describe to you. I mean, I was in hell. And then I started getting uh, psychosis as well, where I had these terrible delusions that I was going to get arrested and thrown in prison and that I would be beaten and stabbed to death in prison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had these, these uh, delusions of seeing myself, uh, you know, dying and dead through this violent death. And it was just terrifying. And so I completely embraced their diagnosis and said, okay, I believe you, doctor. Now, how do I get well? And that began a very painful, 
difficult up and down journey to get mentally well that took mm -hmm. me two years of fighting through what I'll call mental hellness, you know, being in mental hell to get back to mental wellness. It took me two years. Wow. So that is definitely a powerful story. My next question I want to segue into is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Major General Retired Greg Martin. Now, uh, most senior leaders, or let me just say, most junior leaders look at their so look at their leaders as they are, they're unwavering. Uh, that uh, well, hold on, I think we got a question. Uh, so, um, uh, this is Staff Sergeant Rothless. He says, as leaders, how can we break the stigma? He's going right to where I was going. How can we break the stigma of seeking mental health when others may see it as a weakness or being a broken soldier or leader, sir? The first thing is to realize that scientifically, a mental health disorder or mental illness is physiological in nature. It's basically your DNA has combined with some sort of extremely stressful event and created the outbreak of this mental illness or mental disorder. Um, and that's what happened with me. And we can get into how exactly it happened in a future question. So it's not a lack of willpower. It's not a lack of character. It's physical. And it's, it just happens to be that the organ that is ill or affected is the brain. Mm -hmm. So, if, if, and so, but unfortunately, there's a stigma surrounding mental mental health issues. Yes. But you, but but that makes no sense. It's illogical. Uh, it's it's a medieval viewpoint that is unfair. It's cruel. It's cruel and unusual punishment to the person that is afflicted with mental illness. Because think about it. Does anybody? Uh, is there any stigma attached to having cancer or heart disease or diabetes or a broken leg? No, there shouldn't be, and there isn't. If someone has one of those conditions, they go get evaluated, they get the medical help, they, they try get to get treated. well, and mm -hmm. they live a happy, successful life. Unfortunately, there's this stigma surrounding mental illness and mental uh, health issues. So I would say everybody needs to understand that it is physiological within the inner sanctum of the human brain that causes this. It's mm -hmm. not weakness. Um, now, so there's still going to be somewhat of a stigma because people are worried it's going to end their career or it's going to take away their clearance or something bad like that. And to a certain degree, that is still true because the Army has uh, health standards that, that they have to have for certain MOSs. So, mm -hmm. for example, though, if, if, you, if you're an infantryman and you tear your knee up or you break your back in a parachute jump, you're going to get medically either reclassified or medically boarded out of the army because you don't meet the physical standards. So the way I look at it is if I have a mental illness and I get boarded and they say, because of the potential instability of your brain, you can't continue to serve in this capacity or that capacity, but mm -hmm. maybe we can put you in this other one. I accept that. I mean, I really do. And you may say, yeah, but you made it to two-star general and you got your pension. And you're right. I, I did. And so I don't want to be a hypocrite. I know that if I was a younger officer or NCO, it would be inhibiting to come forward and say, hey, I have a mental health disorder. But I think that's what we have to do. If, like if you had a heart disease, you would go forward and try to get your heart fixed, even if it meant you were going to get medically boarded out of the army. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we just have to shift our thinking about this. Right. Exactly. I like I like his uh, his comment. He says, you would not tell a soldier who broke his leg, uh, suck it up and keep on trucking. The brain is just as important as your heart, legs, eyes, etc. And I totally agree with that. Uh, and he kind of he kind of elaborate, elaborated on the point uh, that I wanted to uh, drive home with you. But I want to add this to it. I'm sure at your at your level that you've been in, in higher commands that there may be so many senior leaders that are dealing with mental illness, but uh, but want to make it to the next position, but not physically. I mean, not mentally capable of leading those said organizations and they're dealing with mental health issues and they, their soldiers see them as this stellar leader. What would be your message? Being that you, as a as a two star general, United States Army was dealing with this, uh, did not know it, but there's some that's dealing with it and know it. What would be your message to them if you could look into the camera and talk to them? If I would say that if you know and are aware you have some kind of mental health disorder, you owe it to yourself, your family, and the institution be it Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard you owe it to everybody to go get a mental health evaluation and and get yourself diagnosed. You know, maybe you're fine. Maybe you're just in a very stressful period where you're not getting enough sleep or you're under a lot of stress and you're losing your temper um, or you can't keep your concentration because you're so stressed out, but you might not have a mental illness. Get diagnosed and find out whether you do or not, because if you do and you don't get diagnosed, you could be in serious severe problems like the way I was um, more than I suspect there are many more senior leaders than we realize who do have some kind of mental health disorder. I think it's much more prevalent than we realize, but the majority of the people who have the problems don't realize they have a problem. They're not mm-hmm. aware of it. They don't know. Like I honestly didn't know, like my bipolar didn't strike my whole life from, you know, high school through Colonel, mm. I was extremely energetic, enthusiastic, optimistic, positive, extroverted. And I had a condition that in psychiatric terms is called hyperthymia. Mm-hmm. And it's it's called a hyperthymic personality. And what that means is I had a mild level of mania my whole life. It was like my baseline personality. And it helped me. It gave me the extra energy that I needed to succeed. So I actually had an advantage over somebody that didn't have that. But it was a mild form of mental illness. So when bipolar struck me, I was a brigade commander as a colonel in in the Iraq war. And I was commanding thousands of soldiers, combat. And um, it was extremely stressful. And what the stress did is it triggered my genetic predisposition for bipolar. So I had never had active bipolar. It was dormant. But the stress triggered it. And I went into mania, but it was, I was lucky. It was a high performing mania where again, I felt like unbelievable energy levels. I didn't need sleep. I had, I felt like Superman. I was happy and I was all over the battlefield and I did, you know, a really remarkable job. But once I had that bipolar in 2003, over the next 11 years, the, the manic highs got higher and higher. The depressive lows got lower and lower until by 2014 at NDU, I exploded into acute mania where, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better description, I was like a rocket that launched into space and blew up. 
and then mm -hmm. crash back to the earth into depression. So I honestly did not know or understand that I had an illness. Um, nobody in my family, none of my colleagues, none of the people around me recognized it as bipolar or serious mental wow. illness. And like my people say, well, why didn't your wife realize? And because the, my personality had always been energetic and enthusiastic and high level of drive, all she saw were little incremental changes until the end, 2014. Then mm -hmm. she said, aha. I mean, because I started getting angry outbursts. I would talk for sometimes hours on end. I had flights of ideas. I hardly slept. I'd go out in the middle of the night and go on bike rides all around Washington, D.C. I became a religious fanatic that I could talk about. Um, so I guess the point of all that is I went 11 years from low-level bipolar to extreme bipolar, and I never realized there was anything wrong with me. And the mm -hmm. first time I believed I had it and I realized I had it was when I went into that crippling depression I described a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Throughout all of the multiple deployments and going overseas, of course, we got to go through SRP. And and it was never picked up, correct? Correct. Wow. That is that is, it, that it, is it's even it's even more than that. When I got back from um, Iraq, we went back to Germany. So we we redeployed. So after a year of, you know, combat and on the go war and all that, I was high as a kite. But when I got back to Germany, I sank into depression and I was depressed for 10 months. It wasn't crippling, but it was very serious. It was a mm -hmm. struggle to get out of bed. It was a struggle to go to work. I was low energy. I was down, but I forced myself to keep going. The structure of army life saved me. But when I got back to Germany, we did the uh, post-deployment mental health screening. And they and mm -hmm. I said, hey, I feel terrible. I feel depressed. I've never felt like this before. There's something wrong with me. And the psychiatric people said, well, are you suicidal? I said, no. Do you want to hurt yourself? No. Do you want to hurt others? No. Uh, what do you do when you feel bad? And I said, well, I listen to motivational music. I go for intense PT workouts. I recite power verses out of the Bible. And then increasingly I've been drinking alcohol more and more and more. And they said, Oh, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. You know, fit for duty. I was really in bad shape. And then a few months later, it got so bad. I actually went to see a doctor at the hospital, the army hospital. I said, Hey doc, I don't know what's wrong with me. I mean, I've been high energy my whole life. I got no energy. I feel awful. I mean, classic depression. And he said, well, you know, uh, we'll do some blood tests. Oh, you're fine. All the lab tests came back. You're fine. You just need to, you know, just keep going. You'll be, you'll be okay. And I, I mean, these are, this is what happened. Uh, it happened on multiple occasions where I went in for depression and was told I'm fine. Just get over it, keep going. And then of wow. course I would naturally, the, with bipolar, you, at a certain point, you naturally lift out of depression and you go back into mania. And then when you're in mania, you're Superman again. You're good to go. Yeah, you're good. Right. No, no, most officers in there will get in. It's a couple of articles I want to talk to you about. We're already at 45 after. And you, you can go as long as you want, D. You, I, okay, I okay, great. So, um, but but most officers, sir, I gotta I gotta point this out, and I and I know the I know the followers are watching, and this is key because most officers or any leaders at that level would not go to a doctor and say, Hey, I have an issue. And and that and that is for fear of the army coming down on their career or cutting their career short. But don't do is it not true that if we're not a hundred percent as leaders, how can we give 
to an installation if we're in leadership position, if we're not 100% mentally there? Your thoughts? Yeah, you got to be, you know, you got to be 100% on mind, body, spirit. Your mind and your brain have got to be sharp, functioning, especially as a leader at any level from, you know, team leader on up to chief of staff of the Army, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You got to be mentally on you're you're because it's a thinking person's game you know man or woman you got to be able to think and strategize and manage and lead and organize and that's all in your brain mm-hmm. and that's that's probably more important than your physical fitness although physical fitness is critical but it's mm-hmm. going to be mind body spirit you know so you mm-hmm. physically you got to be strong and in shape and all that and then uh spiritually i mean you got to have a moral compass you got to be ethically sound you got to have strong character so it's all of a mind body spirit it's like a three-legged stool for the leader to be successful wow you did an article about the uh about the uh, afghanistan war vets and the title of it was afghanistan war vets are are enraged and they're hurting uh reach out and listen to them so what what prompted you to uh to publish this uh, this article well I told you I came in the army right at the end of the Vietnam war and I watched it, you know, when I was in high school and I knew a lot of young men who were draftees. In fact, we had one guy in our hometown who he was awarded the medal of honor uh, for heroism during the Tet offensive in uh, 1972, I think it was. And uh, he came home to Holbrook, Massachusetts, and he went into severe depression, terrible PTSD, which they didn't even know about PTSD in those days. And he started drinking heavily, got addicted to alcohol, started taking drugs heavily, got addicted to drugs, and they blew his brains out. He killed himself. What a tragedy. And this guy was a hero. And, um, and I thought about that. And then I studied the Vietnam War in depth at West Point and the Army War College and all these other schools I got to go to. And then the rise of veteran suicides, of, of Vietnam yes. War suicides as as PTSD kept growing like a snowball, like an avalanche, a lot of these soldiers and you know service members, they didn't have PTSD when they first came home from Vietnam, but it came at them later. And so the PTSD grew, the depression grew, the suicides grew, and the majority of veterans today who take their own life are Vietnam veterans. So it's been a rising tide of, sui- of suicides among Vietnam vets. And so you look at um, the Afghanistan war in particular. I mean, it went for 20 years. We had about a million troops went over and served in Afghanistan. And it was a tough, complicated, deadly conflict. I mean, it was really rough. And at the tactical levels, our people did a phenomenal job in an incredibly difficult environment. Um, You know, so if you were a you know, a soldier or a platoon leader or a company commander, battalion commander, even a brigade commander, and you're down there doing your job, making a difference in the lives of the Afghan people, um, you made a difference. You made it better. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. just a fact. And to see all that go up in smoke and watch it 24 hours a day on the news cycle, Mm -hmm. where you already have a lot of Afghan vets and Iraqi vets who have post-traumatic stress, who have traumatic brain injuries, who have survivor's guilt, who have moral injury, who maybe are in severe depression anyway, who maybe they got kicked into bipolar the way that I did. And I can see, and you don't have to be an expert to figure this out, there's going to be a rising increase of mental illness 
that are going to be exacerbated by the PTS and the moral injury and these other factors. And those are the things that trigger when combined with other social factors, such as, you know, losing a loved one, uh, a spouse walking out the door on you, legal problems, financial problems, loss of a job, loss of meaning, homelessness. So when you combine those mental disorders with those external factors, that's what generally causes suicide. So Mm -hmm. I think that out of this Afghan situation, you're going to be see rising mental health disorders and rising uh, suicides, not just in the short term, but for years and decades to come, just like we saw with the Vietnam veteran population. So I was motivated to write an article. And, and mm-hmm. so I reached out to a whole bunch of Afghan vets, including I got two sons that served in Afghanistan, a daughter-in-law who served there, and a lot of other people who have reached out to me because of the articles I wrote and said, OK, what do you think about this? How do you feel right now? What, what are your emotions? And, you know, I put down some of the highlights in the article. But the bottom line is most of them were enraged. They were furious. They were angry. They were frustrated. And at the same time, they were heartbroken. They were hurting. They were sad. Um, they Some of them didn't leave their apartment or their house for you know days or even weeks at a time. And so I wanted to just say, hey, look, to the American public, and I purposely put that article in a significant civilian newspaper. I tried for the New York Times, but they didn't take it. So I went for the Boston Globe, which is my hometown. And they mm-hmm. took it and published it. And then it you know, went all over the place. And I want the American citizen who's watching this debacle unfold on TV to reach out to veterans, ask them how they're doing. You know, don't just say thanks for your service, but say, how are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, what can I do to help you? What, you know, what's going on? And start reaching out and, you know, building the, the uh, support systems to help our vets deal with a tough situation. Uh, so my, before I go to my next question, we have a, a, a statement here from Dorothy Lockett. He was my former brigade commander with the 130th Engineer Brigade in Germany. He was an awesome commander. Glad he's opening up on mental health. Uh, so definitely shout out to Dorothy Lockett, uh, one of your former soldiers. Hey, so, hey, uh, 130th was an awesome brigade. It was a privilege to command it. Um, thank you. Um, I wish I could see your face. But uh, yeah, what a what a privilege commanding the 130th. Awesome, powerful unit with fantastic soldiers like yourself. Great. Appreciate you shouting out, uh, uh, Miss Dorothy. Um, uh, so one of the things uh, as we were talking about uh, mental health and I'm listening to you about veterans and things that are going on. What can I like, for instance, and I don't want to just say me, but people like me that are still in that still have some gas in the tank that still have some motivation to get after. What do you think that leaders like us that are still active or, or that are still serving, what can we do to be a part of helping those veterans? What, what do you think would be befitting for us to take part in uh, helping out our veteran community? Number one, help to stop the stigma that we talked about a few minutes ago. You know, teach people and spread the word that it's not a lack of character or a lack of willpower. It's physiological, it's real inside the brain, just like cancer. So that's number one, help stop the stigma. Number two, both for everybody listening and for your troops below you, there should be some kind of little training. It doesn't have to be huge. It's not a, it's not, it doesn't have to be a big elaborate thing, 
but learn the basic symptoms of the leading mental illnesses. Like if you know what the basic symptoms of depression, which is the biggest mental illness that leads to the most suicides, if you know what the basic symptoms of bipolar disorder are, which is probably the second biggest mental illness and leads to the second number highest number of suicides, if you know what those basic symptoms are, hopefully you can recognize it in your people, possibly in yourself, possibly in family members. So recognizing, having the just the knowledge of what these symptoms look like, mm-hmm. that's huge amount of power. Then, you know, have if you do recognize it, talk to the person and say, hey, I'm not trying to hurt you, but I, I'm, I'm really recommended and I want to help you get in and get some, get a mental health evaluation. I, you know, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want it to go in your records. I don't want you to get medically boarded, but get an evaluation. You owe it to yourself, to your family and to the military to get checked out because if there's nothing wrong with you, then you're good to go. If you're just under a lot of stress and you're having a rough time, then that's good too, because we can deal with stress and anger and agitation and anxiety. But if there really is something wrong, you want to get fixed because it can kill you. Like my bipolar, I am fortunate to be alive. During that two years of hell, I could easily, even though unintended, I could have killed myself with what they call the passive suicidal ideations of envisioning myself getting killed. That could have translated into active suicidal ideations and then an actual taking my own life. So go get help. Third, they call it peer support or having a battle buddy. Mm. You should have a person no matter what your rank. So if you're the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you should have a confidant or a battle buddy who can come in and tell you anything, good, bad, or ugly, and you shouldn't hold it against them or get mad at them. They should be able to tell you honestly, no holds barred, here's the deal, here's what I'm seeing in you, here's what your unit thinks, here's what your people think. They may not be telling you, but I'm telling you what they're saying behind your back. So I think you have to have that kind of a... um, you know, a, a battle buddy peer support system. So those are just three. Stop the stigma, number number one. Number two, be able to recognize the major symptoms of mental health disorders. And then number three, develop a peer support system, even if it's as informal as having a battle buddy who puts mental well-being on their checklist of things to look for and talk about. And then be a, be a friend. I mean, like I had a guy who was a mentor and when I was going through hell, he, I was retired then. He was retired. He was a retired colonel. He stuck with me. He kept calling me. He kept texting me. He kept talking to my wife. He wouldn't give up on me and let me slide into the, into the abyss. And he was instrumental in getting me into the VA and getting you know, really good mental health care, which I got at the VA. And he, was, he knew what he was doing. He understood the symptoms. He had a base of knowledge. And he just persisted. And, you know, when you think about it, when you think like, you know, the great commandment in the Bible, love God, love your neighbor. I mean, Mm -hmm. he really, you know, he loved me. He cared about me. He cared about my family. He took care of me. He held my hand and he never gave up on me. And he just wouldn't let me fall through the cracks. And so Mm -hmm. I would encourage you to be that kind of a, of a friend. Wow. I also took away from that, uh, uh, as leaders, we need to have empathy and compassion for those individuals that are suffering. And it goes back to combating that stigma. 
oh, you can't, oh, you can't do your job. You always got problems going on. And, and if we be honest, that's adding more on top of what the soldier's already dealing with when the soldier is actually just crying out for help, but they're just crying out for it in another form. So uh, we definitely need to have empathy and compassion uh, for those who may be in suffering because we never know what an individual is going through and and the, their behavior, their lack of how they're using their uniform or, and we know that they used, and we, and I'll be honest with you, sir, we see these warning signs. Yes. We, they, and it's not that it's a facade or that it's, it's, it's cloak and dagger. There, some, some warning signs are just automatically there, but we're so busy that we don't address those warning signs when we, when we see them. Go ahead, sir. Well, I was just going to say the warning signs are there. They were all over the place when I was in, you know, serious bipolar. And uh, I went back later, you know, after I, uh, I wrote that article in Task and Purpose, which I think you read first back in March, um, I went back to as many people as I could get a hold of from my platoon leader days all the way to two-star general days. And I said, hey, you know, I, um, I was diagnosed with severe bipolar disorder. Here's an article I wrote. Did you, here's the symptoms of bipolar. Did you see anything that would lead you to believe that I had a mental illness? And in the early days, Nobody really did. They said, hey, you're just super motivated, you know, high energy. You were great to work for. Um, you know, you were hard and high performing, but it was great. And then, but as a brigade commander to two star, people started seeing things, but they didn't know what they were seeing. So mm -hmm. they would say later, wow, you had a, you know, you had a flight of ideas where you had so many good ideas. You couldn't keep up with the ideas. Well, that's a symptom of bipolar, of mania. Or you became so religious, you were a fanatic. Well, religiosity is a symptom of bipolar. You started losing your temper and having angry outbursts. Well, that's mm -hmm. bipolar. You started talking so much and so fast that it was hard to keep up with you. Well, that's a symptom of bipolar. And I could go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Iraq, you know, one of the guys said, you know, I didn't think about it at the time, but you were so aggressive on the battlefield that you were actually putting soldiers in your security detail at risk because you were so motivated and driven to go everywhere, see everything, check on every mission, every soldier on the battlefield. You know, it, it was dangerous. We should have had more force protection, but you just wanted to go. And and that's a symptom of bipolar, high risk taker. Um, and I could wow. go on, but nobody knew what they were seeing. They saw me and they said, wow, this is weird or it's peculiar, or it's strange. But because they weren't trained, nobody had any training in what to look for as far as mental health. Wow, sir, that is that is totally amazing. Uh, another article uh, that you talked about, uh, you talked about a three headed monster. Uh, tell us about those three headed monsters and and elaborate on them uh, individually at your leisure, sir. The mic is yours. Sure. So last month, September was National Suicide Prevention Month. And mm -hmm. every month needs to be suicide prevention focused. I but agree. I, so I got fired up and I said, man, I am going to, man, I am going to write some articles. I'm going to give some talks. I'm going to get busy on the suicide prevention because it's such a huge problem. I mean, you know, and you know the statistics, it's, it's huge and it's getting worse and it's going to get even worse uh, with the Afghanistan situation. So I said, okay, if the theme is suicide prevention, what is the problem? What are the key factors in suicides? And so 
the idea of a three-headed monster came up because it is a monster. And one of the heads is mental illness. You know, depression and bipolar are two very serious mental health disorders, and they're huge contributors to suicide. So mental illness is one head. Stigma is head number two, because if we didn't have a stigma, people would go in and get help and they would get, you can get healed. Like I'm a good example. I mean, I'm five plus years into recovery. My life is wonderful. I am happy. I'm healthy. I have a whole new network of friends. My marriage is great. I'm loving life. But if I hadn't gotten help, I would be a disaster. I'd probably be dead. So you got to get after the, the stigma. So mental illness, number one, stigma, number two. And then those two are wrapped into the third head of the monster, which is suicide itself. And so I talk about the three factors, the three big, you know, each head. I talk about why I care about it. It's so personal to me that my mental illness was triggered in Iraq, um, that I know so many people who have severe mental illnesses who have come to me after my first article back in March and, and who said, you know what, Joe Martin, I have real serious problems. I know there's something wrong. I'm not getting help because of the stigma. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I don't want to admit it. But if you did as a general, then who the hell am I as a captain or an E6 to not go get help? So tons of people have come to me and said, hey, you really encouraged me. Uh, here's what I'm doing now. I had one young man. This is this guy. He was a man. He was a young officer who had an absolutely horrible thing happen to him and his, his uh, team in Afghanistan. Anyway, severe PTSD, severe traumatic brain injury, depression, survivor guilt, moral injury, you name it, he had it. He comes home from the war. He's so bizarre and crazy that the army separated him just for being, you know, bad conduct, out of control, unsuitable for service. Um, his wife, kicked him out and left him and took the kids and left. He ended up, uh, couldn't get a job or hold one. And he, he was a captain. He was a West Point graduate. He, um, mm -hmm. homeless, addicted to alcohol, started shooting up heroin, um, suicidal. And he read the article. And I'm not saying this as a pat myself on the back. He read the article and said, holy crap, I'm going to go get help. And he, so he and I have been in steady communication and he's cleaning his life up. He went to the VA. That's he's great. getting wow. help. He's got a job. He's got a plan to go back to graduate school. He has a career idea in mind. He wants to be VA therapist, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's hundreds, if not thousands of people who have these stories. And I want to see them go get help. And I know, I know my vision. And by the way, my vision, my mission is to share my bipolar story to help stop the stigma and save lives. And my standard of success is when nobody feels stigmatized to the point that they don't go get med medical help. So in other words, we have success when every single person who needs help goes and gets help. And I think we can get there if we can have an educational campaign to stop the stigma. So those are the big factors in suicide. I talk, I talk a little bit about my own personal situation and how important it is that we get after this and get the right training that I already talked about a few minutes ago. Wow. So that brings me to that third article that uh, that you wrote, and uh, it was in the Florida Florida Today that retired two star general opens up about his bipolar disorder, and it saves lives. So now you have become an advocate 
of ensuring that your story gets out to hear, uh, for others to hear and potentially someone reads or hear your story or even sees this video and say, hey, like the one person, if a two-star general can do it, I, I have I have an opportunity to uh, to be able to go and seek help and not worry about the stigmas or, or whatever is out there. So you opening up, sharing your story uh, is, is eventually potentially going to help combat that stigma and at the same time reach those individuals that may be dealing with the trauma, the disorder, the depression, the things that they're going through in life. Because let's be honest, sir, we all go through something. Some of us, some of us just hide it well, and that goes back to those soldiers seeing us as stellar leaders. But we all go through things, whether it's marital, whether it's spiritual, whether it's you know combat related or work related or things that may have happened in our childhood that we haven't discussed, that we haven't talked about. All of this encompasses those disorders that we were talking about. And like we said earlier, um, if we don't take heed to the warning signs, we can't be effective as leaders to those individuals that we lead in order to be an effective leader we have to be 100 percent. and what we need to realize is that if we don't get help and we go overseas or to some type of mission or it don't even have to be combat related just on the range and because we we've ignored something and now a soldier is hurt because of something that we forgot to do as a leader and now that soldier is missing at the dinner table because we failed to go get help. And it's too late when the 21 gun salute or when taps is being played or they're handing you a folded flag. We need leaders to get engaged now when we see those warning signs, have the intestinal fortitude, whether you're a mentor, you're a leader, platoon leader, or you're a subordinate. Hey, Sergeant, you, you're a little bit off today. What's going on? But I want to I want to ask you this. For those soldiers that want to go to their senior leaders and and and, and you know and address the hey sergeant like you you you're a little off today, they may have fear of reprisal that that leader may snap back at them. What is your message to the soldiers that want to go out and say something to those leaders that they think are having issues? You raise a great point. I mean, fear of retribution or mm -hmm. as a subordinate going up to your superiors and saying, "Hey, I think you have." potentially a mental health disorder and you should go get help. I mean, that's almost an impossible task to ask a subordinate to do, a younger mm -hmm. person to go, you know, like, can you imagine going up to a colonel and saying, hey, hey, sir, or, hey, ma'am, I, th I think you really have a problem. So what has to happen? So, you know, there's reasons people don't go and in, in confront. Num number one, they don't know what the symptoms are, but if they do, they're afraid to go forward. So, you we, what we have to do as an organization is build safe channels. Mm -hmm. So like in my case, when I was the president of NDU and I had severe bipolar disorder, I mean, really bad. And lots of people saw it. And even though they didn't know, oh, this is symptomatic of bipolar or what I'm seeing, this is mania. Um, they didn't know that because they were untrained, which is really inexcusable. I mean, the military has to train people to know what they're looking at. But they knew something was wrong. They knew something mm -hmm. wasn't right. They just didn't know what it was. And so maybe they were afraid to come confront me as a two-star, which I understand and I don't blame them. But I had an ambassador working for me who was, you know, a two-star equivalent. Mm -hmm. I had 
I had multiple senior executive service people who are, you know, flag officer equivalents, you know, they're one and two star equivalents. So there were a bunch and there were other generals. I had a number of other. So I was a two star, but there were there were other two stars and one stars at NDU, even though I was the boss. So people could have gone to those other very senior level leaders and said, hey, General Smith, um, here's what I'm noticing in General Martin. I mean, he, there's just something not right. There's something really wrong. I, I don't know what it is, but, you know, here's what I'm seeing. Um, maybe he could go get a mental health exam um, or, hey, ambassador or, hey, SES. But that didn't happen to the degree it should have happened. And the limited number of times that it did happen, those people who were virtually my peers, who were all you know, retirement eligible, there was nothing I could do to hurt them at all, period. I mean, I can't touch an SES until, until, unless they break some law. I can't touch an ambassador. I can't touch a general officer unless they break the law. Why didn't they come in and see me face to face and say, hey, and then, you know, if I didn't listen to them, they could have had, you know, an open channel to General Dempsey and say, hey, General Dempsey. And, and he knew every one of them and, and or, you know, get me command referred. Uh, uh, that's a, that's a failure of the system. And I don't know whether the people were afraid to talk to me whether they were afraid it would hurt me. You know, in my follow-on interviews, a lot of people at NDU said, hey, we knew something was wrong, but you were still very, very effective. You were doing great things to transform the university. You were making a difference. We really liked you. You were a great guy. You were fun to be around. You know, you were such a caring, motivated, energetic leader. We didn't want to do anything to hurt you. And um, a number of them said that. So I think at the point I was at, you got to love the institution more than the individual leader. They should have loved NDU and the Army and the U.S. military more than they loved me. I was already retirement eligible. I hadn't done anything morally, ethically, legally wrong. If I did get diagnosed with bipolar disorder, the worst thing that would happen to me is I'd get medically boarded out and I'd still get, you know, two-star retirement. So they should have done something. And I'm not criticizing them, but in retrospect, they should have. And I think they all admit that they probably fell a little short on what they should have done. But it wasn't for bad intent or bad reasoning. They actually did it because they liked me and cared for me. Okay. Wow, sir. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quiet, sir, and I'm going to allow you to uh, have your closing comments, things that you may want to uh, uh, push to the audience, sir. Uh, the mic is yours. Okay. Um, it's been great talking with everybody. I appreciate it. And I have, be, you know, I, uh, I pulled out of the, um, the severe depression and psychosis back in 2016. So from 2014 to 2016, I went through hell, um, you know, with these passive suicidal ideations and all the rest that I describe in some of my articles, especially the task and purpose article. It'll be in real detail when my book comes out next year, but recovering from this kind of mental hellness is really, really hard. You have to admit that you have a severe disorder. You have to embrace it and accept it. And then you have to just humble yourself to the medical system, which I did with the VA. And I, I give the VA high marks 
for mental health treatment. I, I have really liked and respected my psychiatrists and therapists that I've worked with. But you, I mean, I went, I went into, I was inpatient for weeks. So I was in an inpatient psychiatric ward locked up with my fellow veterans. And I needed that. That was the right thing for me. I wish it had happened earlier. I wish it had happened on active duty when I was at Walter Reed. Um, it's hard to pull out of this though. It's difficult to diagnose. I'm lucky they diagnosed me correct. They tried over a dozen different kinds of medications. None of them worked. It didn't pull me out of it until finally they tried lithium, which is kind of the, it's kind of like bringing in the heavy artillery of mood stabilizers. It's a natural salt that's actually harvested from the crust of the earth. And it changed me in a matter of two to three days. I started feeling like my old self after two years. And, um, and then you got to get into, you got to embrace a holistic, healthy lifestyle. So even though I've been lifted out of my severe bipolar, the bipolar is still in my brain. It's still, I have to keep it at bay through taking my medications, keeping in close contact with my doctors, living a very healthy life, mind, body, spirit, relaxing, healthy diet, plenty of water, plenty of sleep, um, you know, plenty of exercise. Um, a network of friends, a net, you know, being in close touch with family, but also being able to have fun. I've taken up new hobbies. Like I now, I, I never danced before. My favorite hobby is I love dancing. It's phenomenal. I started doing uh, fitness classes with my wife where I'm like the only guy in the class with all women. And they've mm -hmm. been so good for my fitness and my mind. And they play really, you know, invigorating music. And so you have to adopt this very healthy lifestyle. And then you got to identify what are the minefields? What are the IEDs that could trigger, re-trigger my bipolar? Because it could come back at me. Well, the triggers for me are high stress, agitation, anxiety, anger, rage. And so you got to do an intel, intelligence preparation of the battlefield, IPB, which we do in the military. And mm -hmm. I identify where are those IEDs and minefields that can you know, kill me. And I, I've built guardrails around them. And I have a very, I work closely with my wife and my therapist and I don't go near those minefields. I stay away. And that means there's certain activities that I used to love to do that I don't do anymore. I don't stay out, try to be lights out 10 o'clock. I try to get eight hours of sleep. I hardly drink at all. I used to drink a fair amount, especially when I was manic. I, I barely drink at all. Um, I used to think I could joust verbally and intellectually with anybody about any topic. Well, I found out that's not true. There's certain aspects of religion and politics and social things that if I get into that debate, even though I'm smart and you know I've studied this stuff and I, I debated it when I was president of NDU and so forth, I can't go there anymore because it arouses such agitation and anger and rage that it can kick back into bipolar. So I, I figured out what not to do. And then I said, okay, I, I started a year and a half ago. So I'm five years into recovery. I said, okay, how can I really make my life count? What can I do that is going to really make a difference for people in the military and soldiers and their families and everybody else? I said, man, I have a unique story. As far as anybody knows, no general or admiral has ever told a detailed story of their mental health crisis. So I'm going to tell it. I started writing a book. And so it took me a year to write the manuscript. And meanwhile, I was giving 
talks at churches and at the war college and at different schools and civic groups. So I gave more and more talks. And then, you know, the more I talked, I got, the more invites I would get, like you inviting me to this. And then uh, once I finished my manuscript uh, and got it in the publication process, I started writing articles. Like I wrote the one in March. Unbelievable response. Um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people have contacted me and interviewed me and asked me to speak and all that. And I did three more articles in September and I've got four more in the docket that should come out in the next month or two. And I'm just so my my mission, my life mission is to to tell my bipolar story to help stop the stigma and save lives. And that's it. So I've been offered good jobs to, that would pay me a good amount of money. And I've looked at it and said, how will that help my mission to stop the stigma? I said, well, if I get into the business world, I'm not going to have time to do all this bipolar mental health stuff. So I, I turned it down. I mean, you know, God is good. The army is good. The country's good. I got a military retired pension. It's more than enough for me and my wife to live off. I don't need the extra dollars. So I'm going to do this meaningful, purposeful life that I have, this mission. So that's it. I, I think uh, in my closing comments, I want to say a couple of things. Um, your your purpose has been founded. It, it's it's been and 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 it is it is it is definitely taken off. And I want to say, uh, and I'm sure I don't have to say this to you, sir. But for me, as a as a young senior non-commissioned officer, sir, I want to commend you to keep walking in purpose. Uh, continue to keep doing what you're doing because I believe that the mission and the purpose that you're on now is bigger than what you had at NDU. And because everybody at NDU seems to be okay, but there's a whole host of community of people and leaders out there and even former leaders that are veterans right now that are afraid to come out and, and share their story or say, hey, I need help. Or there are leaders that are out there that are still active like myself and other leaders that are afraid and don't have the intestinal fortitude to go to their battle buddies or go to those mentees or go to those subordinates or peers and seniors and say, hey, I'm noticing something different about you. So what you're doing is totally bigger than the mission or the or the task that you had at NDU. And I believe that um, based on 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 what you say, and even your spirituality is that God has something bigger for you. So what you're doing, sir, and to be able to come on and be as candid. And even in our interview, our pre-interview, like, hey, ask whatever you want to ask. You're not going to get most leaders like that. And, and I'm going to say this, and it, it wasn't, and I felt like it would have been the same even if you were still active. It's not because you were retired, but the passion and the drive that you have to get this message out was like, hey, ask me whatever you want to ask because we need to start having those type of conversations we need to invite people into those rooms and sit at the table and listen and say there's a two-star general retired that went through something that most sergeants would never talk about most first sergeants are command sergeants majors colonels and light colonels and lieutenant colonels and would never talk about but here's a general flag officer that has an open conversation about his story because his purpose in life is bigger than just himself. And for you to be able to go through what you went through and to share that with others in order for them to see that you do have value, you do have worth. You don't have to feel hopelessness. You don't have to go through this by yourself. There's individuals out there like yourself and others 
that are willing to help you. We just need you to get on board. So I want to commend you, uh, sir, for um, for taking this opportunity to come on to the show. I knew from the time I read this article and when Miss Veronica reached out to you and she told me you said yes, I was like, oh, my God, like we got him. So um, I definitely uh, appreciate you coming on. I got one question I want to ask you. Well, actually, two. Uh, there may be some there may be some people that see this video and that are still active or whatever and are looking for a mentor. Are you still available for mentorship? Absolutely. OK, I'll, okay. I'll give you my uh, email address, too, if people want to shoot me a note or continue the dialogue. OK, OK, great. And uh, the next thing I want to say is so uh, I, I do know the next time I want to invite you back for sure is when your book is released. I would like for you to come on and give us the exclusive of your book release uh, on the platform and uh, be able to share that with us as well. And I still want to put together a panel of mental health uh, experts. And I believe uh, my public relations advisor, uh, First Sergeant Collier, uh, definitely want to give her a shout out and welcome. We have a new teammate uh, to the uh, uh, to the team. She just had a daughter. I believe her name is Grace. So the NCOPD Live family is, st is steadily growing. And, and so definitely want to give her a shout out. But I believe that she she's working on something uh, about mental health and getting some professionals and some uh, some psychiatrists to come on and speak. So definitely we'll definitely keep your name in, in, in mind when we put this panel together to come on and, 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 and be a guest on that show. But I want to say, sir, you have no idea the amount of gratitude I have for you to come on this show and have this conversation. And when the army is definitely pushing people first, these are the type of conversations that we have to be willing to have. It doesn't have to be on social media. Uh, it could be just in a circle. They used to call it, um, uh, I'm pretty sure you know more about it than I do, under the oak tree. Right. You know, you, you go up under the oak tree and, and, and you just have a discussion. It's more than just signing the counseling, but being able to go back to that foundation to be able to talk to them, say, hey, D, what's going on with you today? How was your weekend? And you never know what I went through over the weekend to be able to express what I've got, what I have going on. I'll be able to look at those um, those triggering mechanisms, those red flags uh, to be able to uh, uh, acknowledge and see that there's something going on with that person. So, sir, on behalf of my advisors, uh, my entire team and staff, I'm truly humbled and grateful uh, that you took the time out to come on to today's show. And I look forward to speaking to you uh, in the near future. And I'm looking at the comments. Um, uh, thank you for being the voice uh, for others who are afraid to speak up. Uh, Dorothy Lockett is back on. Uh, so, sir, uh, it was definitely a great pleasure speaking to you. And we would definitely be speaking to you uh, here in the near future. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dee. Thanks to everybody who participated. Again, feel free to reach out to me. And I'm really proud of everybody and really appreciate what you're doing. Our country needs you now more than ever. So hang in there and stay in touch. Lock, lock me in. So, so the first number, sir, you called was the, uh, the uh, NCOPD live, direct line to me. But the second number where I text you from is my personal number. So uh, I'm definitely going to lock you in. That's one thing I love about when I have a great guest on the show. I'm connected with them for life. So uh, I'd definitely like to check in on them from time to time. So I'm definitely going to lock you in. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, go ahead, sir. No, I just said, thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that's been another great edition of NCOPD Live with uh, hosted by yours truly, Son First Class Hicks, hashtag the professional SGL, along with my special guest tonight, Major General Greg Martin, retired. And y'all know the motto, if you see something wrong and you fail to do something about it, then you have just created a new standard. And at the end of the day, their issue is never with you, but their issue is with the standard. It's been yours truly, Son First Class Hicks, it's still drawing on. It's still growing on me, sir. I, I've been saying slap song for the longest, but so on first class Hicks hashtag the professional SGL along with Major General Greg F. Martin. We'll be seeing you all soon. Have a good evening, everybody. On behalf of my advisors, the NCOPD Live team, we would like to thank tonight's special guests and for all of you that have tuned into tonight's show. Until next week, we'll be seeing you soon. Have a great evening. Good night.